You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I'm speaking with Sir Roger Penrose on consciousness and new physics. Roger is a distinguished pure mathematician, mathematical physicist, and Nobel laureate in physics. The emeritus Rouse Ball Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford, Penrose has distinct views on the philosophy of science, physics, cosmology, and mind, which we explore now. Roger, welcome. You argue famously that the known laws of physics cannot explain consciousness. This was the theme of your first book on the topic in 1989, The Emperor's New Mind, Concerning Computers, Minds, and the Laws of Physics. Now, 33 years later or so, how have your arguments held up? Held up? Well, there's two issues here with regard to me or with regard to the general public. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's hear both. Well, with regard to me, the general view is very similar. I certainly... In detail, there are differences. Um, with regard to the general public, I have no idea, really. <laughs> I, <laughs> When I wrote that book, I thought there was something I needed to say. Um, I had no idea whether anybody would take me seriously or not. Um, I'm not even sure whether they have taken me seriously or not. Um, not many people have, in a certain sense. I think I was arguing against the idea that computation is really what's going on um, there is computation going on in the brain, but always I wondered about one of the biggest discrepancies is what's going on in the cerebellum and the cerebrum. The cerebrum is this thing at the top here, divided down the middle and all that. And the cerebellum is sort of back and underneath. When I wrote The Emperor's New Mind, I didn't even know how extreme this issue was because I thought there were more neurons in the cere- cerebrum than the cerebellum. I learned now that there are many more neurons in the cerebellum, the unconscious part of the brain, than in this conscious part. Also, the cerebellum uh, controls nerves in a much more obvious way, you see. The right hand is controlled by the right side, the left hand by the left side, the top. uh, If you were designing a computer, maybe that's the way you'd do it. Cerebrum, crazy. Right side by the left, or top by the feet by the top of the brain, and it's all backwards. Why would one design a thing that way if it was a computer? I mean, I have no idea, and I don't know what people think about that now. It just seemed to me that there's something else going on, which is not what's going on in the cerebellum. The cerebellum could well be some sort of computer in some sense. There's no argument against that. But it seems to be completely unconscious. So consciousness, whatever that is, is something which has all these implications of this crazy organization, but that may be a secondary issue. What is it that makes it conscious? Why is it being conscious is any advantage to it? So does conscious, consciousness do something? I mean, why can't we get away with just being unconscious? And it's not just humans. You go back and, okay, maybe the, the discrepancy is, is much greater or somewhat greater in humans, but uh, you find other animals certainly have this division between cerebrum and cerebellum and all that sort of thing. There must be certain things which are conscious to them, um, certain things which are unconscious to them, just as with us. It's a bit more refined in our cases, and we can do things like mathematics, which 
that they may not be so good at doing on the whole, but not all humans are all that good at doing mathematics. So what's that got to do with anything? <laughs> you argue against the view that the mind is entirely algorithmic, and thus, if it were algorithmic, it could be duplicated in full by a sufficiently powerful uh, computer. In essence, that's what the claim for strong AI is, and yes. you say yes. that cannot work. That's correct. That is my view. Of course, it may be that you could get computers which get so powerful that they don't even need to bother with um, intelligence or something like that, but it's not the same. And understanding, I tend to use the word understanding because the examples I tend to use are mathematical examples, and it really goes back to the Gödel theorem when I um, was at the lectures given by Steen and he described the Gödel theorem to me. It was the fact that your understanding of the rules enables you to transcend the rules. And somehow understanding whatever it is, is some quality which requires consciousness. And so I tend to emphasize that without really knowing what any of these words mean. I don't really know what understanding means or what consciousness means. But, it, but I think to say that consciousness is an ingredient of understanding is saying something. <laughs> it's also saying that it can't be a purely computational process. Now, I did try to argue in The Emperor's New Mind, I really gave up at the end of the book. You see, I talked about the Hodgkin-Huxley nerve transmission. So I got as far as understanding how nerves were supposed to work. And my understanding led me to a view that a nerve transmission is useless if you want to preserve quantum coherence, because it will simply leak out in, into, the, into the brain and, and you just don't preserve your coherence. Why do you need to preserve quantum coherence? Because the argument would be you need to make use of the collapse of the wave function, because that was the only place I could see where you could have non-computational processes going on. So the wave function collapse, the OR, the objective reduction of the state, has to be, in my view, a central part of whatever consciousness is. Now, this goes very much in sort of opposite direction to, to the way many of the early quantum mechanics people did. Wigner is often remarked on as someone who uh, took the view that, that your quantum, your quantum, you see, you have the quantum state can be put into a superposition of two things at once. Thing can be here and here at the same time. But um, the argument tended to be that when somebody comes and looks at it, the act of observation in the sense of a human being observing it in that sort of direct sense is what makes it be one or the other. And so it's quite a common view that Wigner and von Neumann tended, I, I actually talked to Wigner when I was in Princeton about this, and he, he wasn't so dogmatic as people tend to think about this, but this was certainly a view that he thought was a possibility. I think there are many arguments which you can present which make it extremely improbable that it is a conscious being observing. You can think of a, a sort of hypothetical situation where somebody Somebody sends a spaceship out to a distant planet, and so I won't go into that, but, but it seems highly unlikely that actually being conscious, being reducing the state is the answer. My argument is the other way around, is that whatever a conscious being is, is making use of some physical process we, we don't yet understand, which is the collapse of the wave function. And I call that OR, the objective reduction of the state. I wrote my book, The Emperor's New Mind, 
to try, and I was hoping young people might get inspired by it. Most of the correspondence I had were from old retired people, which wasn't so encouraging. But I did get a letter back from Stuart Hammeroff, who is an anesthesiologist, but he's interested in what he's actually doing, unlike most of his colleagues who are happy enough to get them to come, come back awake again afterwards. But he wonders what he was actually doing and came to the view that the general anesthetics act on microtubules. Now, he mentioned this in his hair. I evidently didn't know about these things. He was quite right. I'd never heard of them before. I lots of, get lots of crazy letters from people, and so I think, what's well, this another crazy letter, you see? And then I look it up, and I say, yeah, no, microtubules are really there. He's got a point. And then I thought, microtubules, these little tiny tube-like structures, were much, much more promising as something which might preserve some kind of quantum coherence at such a level. You've got to get it up to such a level that the collapse is actually going to be an important process. If you could keep that under control in some way, maybe consciousness would depend on the action of microtubules. So we got together when he persuaded me the existence of these objects, and I found them very remarkable with their beautiful symmetry and things like this. The more I've learned about this, the more complicated the story gets. So it's a hugely complicated subject. But there does seem to be some evidence that microtubules are sensitive to general anesthetics. There is some evidence which is part of an ongoing study made by various experimenters. So I, I think that this is a very important area to explore. Do we see any indication that microtubules or other structures connected with microtubules might be preserving quantum coherence at a level which could be kept going until you have enough mass displacement that the collapse of the wave function could be part of conscious activity, an important part, the important part of conscious activity. To focus on microtubules is interesting in, ter in terms of if you've already uh, concluded that uh, the collapse of the wave function or quantum mechanics even broadly are relevant for the consciousness um, uh, assessment. And so I'd like to just go back that, to that stage. W what are the, some of the primary arguments why you need to invoke um, activity at the scale of quantum mechanics in order to explain consciousness? I mean, most neuroscientists would have obviously at the at the level of, of of the neuron, the nerve cell, or systems in the brain. There are different theories of how consciousness occurs, but they all occur on vastly larger orders of magnitude than what occur uh, at, at the quantum level. Yes, well, you have to have steps which get you up there. Um, I I think it's actually the case that although the view that Stuart Hammeroff and I had in the early stages was regarded as pretty offbeat. It's now has become one of the major ideas in, in uh, what's going on in, in uh, conscious perception and so on. So it's not regarded, I think, as, as completely flaky. <laughs> I think people don't understand it very well. We don't understand it very well. And as you say, you've got to work your way up. I mean, it's a long way from, say, um, atomic processes and microtubules. That's a huge step. But you've already got another huge step before you get from individual microtubules to the action of nerve transmission or how syn synapses operate. 
how do you get these things which are a, a very small level of activity somehow magnified up to something which could um, produce a muscle doing something quite different? Does it do A or B? And it has to do it very quickly. And there are very interesting questions which come up. See, I used to play ping pong quite a bit when I was at school. And uh, I love I love ping pong. I play two, three times a week. That's oh, my, still do. my I would love to. My eyesight isn't good enough. I can't see where the ball is anymore. So it's useless <laughs> now, which is a great. Well, I've been playing with I've been playing with one eye for uh, thirty or forty years, and I've sort of gotten used to. I don't know <laughs> if, I, if I if I had two eyes again, I'm sure I couldn't play. But anyway, you see, this it's this thing, and you you decide you make your decision. He's not quite ready for me to put it down. The, uh, I think of you know, Roger Federer said deciding whether he's going to hit it down the line or cross court. And he probably yeah. hasn't decided until he's just seen where his opponent is and which is more likely to, to fool the opponent. And that seems like a conscious decision. However, according to modern neurophysiology, there's no chance. It's all got to be done unconsciously. I don't believe that. I think that there is a conscious element in making this decision. And it's, it raises all sorts of extremely interesting questions, both in physics and in neurophysiology. I think we're only scratching the surface at the moment. We're a long, long, long way from really understanding what's going on. So when you ask these questions about aren't we a long step from this and this and this, yes, we are. <laughs> so I, I think that biology has been extremely clever in doing things. And not only once, it's done it more than once. I mean... I'm very impressed by the way octopuses behave. I think there's a consciousness there, and there's no question when I, to my mind, that octopuses are conscious. They developed in a completely different way, but yet come to a level where, according to this kind of model, they are also taking advantage of harnessing what's going on in the collapse of the wave function. That's the claim I'm making. Yeah, okay, that's a... I'm sure lots of people don't accept that view, but then they might toy with it. You see that it's the view is very incomplete because we don't even have a theory of the collapse of the wave function. It's only a vague idea of about when does it happen. That's that's the only that's as far as the theory gets. We need a proper theory. So the claim is that the collapse of the wave function is critical in the generation of consciousness in some sense and and so the argument that you need to overcome is why is the collapse of the wave function in a neurological environment um, critical when the same collapse of the wave function is occurring in other biological systems, the kidney, the liver, wherever, and in non-biological systems, because that's the way the world works. What is particularly unique about its collapse in a neurological environment that in some sense uh, uh, furthers the process or is critical to the process of generating consciousness, even if that needs to grow into larger systems as you, you grow up in the, in, in the biological hierarchy of, of, uh, of, of, of systems within, within the brain. But why is, conscious, why is the collapse of the wave function critical in that process in a neurological environment different than in all the other environments? I think there are obviously a lot of questions here. We don't know the answer to almost all of them. In fact, one would have to understand why consciousness is so important evolution, in evolution. I mean, to get to our level, it's got to have gone through all sorts of other levels. I mean, I like to think of examples where I um, think of the, what the 
hunting dogs. These are sort of David Attenborough programs or something. But I remember the hunting dogs, and there's some photographs of them, and they seem to know what they're doing. And they, you can see the dogs going along, and they separate into two groups. One group go and they sort of hide near where there is a path which comes to a river. The other lot go off into the distance and start making uh, howling at these these uh, gazelles or whatever they are and make a great noise and chasing them in the direction of where the other dogs are hiding. And when they get to this place, we're just near the river, the dogs pounce on them. Now, they've worked all this out. Now, I don't suppose they've used words in our sense. How do they collaborate with each other? How do they communicate with each other in such a way that they've worked out this plan of attack? I mean, it's fascinating. They're, I think, using consciousness in order to do this. But this would be an, an example of how consciousness, evidently, I, mean, I don't know detail, <laughs> consciousness is of use to them. I'm sure it's useful also to all the other animals too. But uh, when you get to the octopuses, which have a completely different um, evolution from us, but yet consciousness in them, as I claim they seem to seem to have, consciousness then has a selective advantage, which is extremely important. And it has to be important at a level which is much, much lower in a certain sense of the word than the kind of mathematical sense where one can see it's not computable. So the examples that I tend to use, which are mathematical, Examples where you can see it's, it's non-computable because of mathematical theorems. Okay, that could be that's true, but it's not why it's been advantageous to an octopus or to a hunting dog. What's advantageous to them is some level of whatever understanding is, and I don't know what that is, but it's something where consciousness is of an advantage to them. I'm claiming. I mean, I don't even know if that's true, but the, it would seem to be the case fascinating, and I think we're so long, we're much, much further away from having a real understanding of this than, than we are of understanding even probably the collapse of the wave function in quantum mechanics. I mean, that's not too far from our current understanding. But what, how biology makes use of these things, I mean, that's that's really a long, long way off. I, I, I certainly agree. What I'd like to understand is very specifically how uh, ORC OR, Orchestrated Objective Reduction, works. <laughs> what, is that, what is that exact process or what is the, the, uh, the, the current thinking about how that actually works in mi microtubules? We'd love to know. <laughs> um, it's, it's, more, it's more a hope than an actual project. It's not specifically saying microtubules, you see. The evidence is so far that microtubules are, are the best bet of being something with a good chance of preserving quantum coherence at a good level. I would be surprised myself if they were the only such structure. I think it's most unlikely. There are, for example, structures in synap near synapses hanging around them what on earth they're doing there, who knows? But these are little um, structures called, uh, called um, um, clathrins. And what struck me about them is they have remarkable symmetry. They have this sort of icosahedral symmetry. And they're hanging around synapses. And what on earth are they doing? Well, the only kind of thing which is rings a little tinkle of a bell somewhere is that maybe there is something known as the Jan-Teller effect taking place. What's the Jan-Teller effect? 
So this is telling you when you have a symmetrical structure like that, you can have a lowest energy level, which is uh, has which is degenerate. So you have a lot of quantum states at this low level all at once. So you have, a, if if you like, a bit of quantum computing going on at that level, which is isolated from the next level. Now that is something a feature of symmetry. So when you see symmetry in these tiny little structures, and that was one of the things about microtubules, which rather took my attention, that they seem to have the symmetry. There's arguments about this which need resolving, so it's not clear what's going on there. But the fact that you have these clatter and molecules hanging around synapses as well, are they making use of some process, Jan-Teller type effect, where you've got a, a lowest level which can be isolated from the higher levels and have enough degrees of freedom to do something interesting quantum mechanically? Maybe, but they were a long way from understanding these things. So no matter what the, the, the mechanism is, in some sense, we have to say that whatever that is, is causing or is, is in an identity sense, the phenomenology of conscious experience, because we all know what that phenomenology, we all know what that feels like. And so whatever the theory is, whether people talk about, you know, global workspace or integrated information or uh, neuronal uh, circuitries um, at the synapse level or the neuron level or the systems level, they have to say that that entity is the consciousness. Um, And so uh, aren't you hitting that same barrier with orchestrated OR that the claim has to be that that somehow that physical process becomes or is or is identical with a conscious experience. Well, you see, we are saying something different. We're saying that there is a definite different physical process going on. It's not just complication. It's not just organization, how many things connected with how many things or something like that. It is a different part of physics, which is made use of. Now, you see, all these other models don't do that. Now, when you say, you ask me what OR is, it's vague on that. It's really the ORC part, which is vague. The OR part is even vague itself, because we don't know what the physical theory is yet. But if we really had a good physical theory of the objective reduction of the quantum state, that is what OR stands for. Now, the ORC part means orchestrated. Now, that means what, what do you do with it? I mean, you've got this physical process. How do you organize that in some useful way? How is it actually made macroscopic in some way? I mean, you have these processes which are just at the borderline of where quantum mechanics ceases to be quantum mechanics we know and love, or don't love if we don't love it, and whatever it is, <laughs> the quantum mechanics that we, that we know, which seems to give up at that point. And what, what So is... Is part of your claim that to understand consciousness in terms of orchestrated objective reduction uh, could actually help uh, clarify or modify the understanding of quantum mechanics rather than just assuming quantum mechanics and using that to explain consciousness, but in that process see a different kind of, 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 of the nature of quantum mechanics, which you've been arguing for in a, different, in a non-consciousness setting as well? Mm-hmm. I think but it's a slightly dangerous argument because it goes against the view, as I said, the old Wigner von Neumann type of view was that somehow 
conscious, it's not explaining what a conscious being is, but if you have one, it's what reduces the quantum state. So I'm trying not to say that. I'm trying to say that um, whatever a conscious, a conscious event is, well, actually, we tend to use the word proto-conscious in, in our discussions. This is with, with Stuart Hammerall. Um, the actual um, in, individual, pro, the building blocks of consciousness, if you like, mm-hmm. proto-conscious events. If we could understand what it is in a nervous system where it makes a big difference when if the thing collapses to A or to B, makes a big difference in the way that the entity behaves. So that would be, you're seeing how this quantum event is being magnified into a macroscopic process. Now, that's that's still not really understanding what kind of organization makes something be intelligent or what makes something be conscious in any ordinary sense of the word. They have genuine feelings, what, what is playing, what is pain, what is pleasure, what are things like that, very, very basic notions of conscious experience. I mean, it doesn't touch those things. I want to understand how the uh, objective reduction that one collapse of the wave function uh, might work, because it would seem that virtually at the same time, there are billions, if not trillions of, of collapses going on in the brain at the same time. And and so is it the combination of all of these? I mean, could one event be a, 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 a trigger of, of consciousness? Is that the, the claim? I think the trouble is that we don't know. Um, it's, a, it's a very negative point of view, in a sense. It's saying that you've got to involve this physical theory that we don't have yet. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty negative in that sense. And... I think that even Stuart and I might differ to some degree in what we think is going on. I mean, does a conscious experience involve zillions of these OR events, or is it somehow only one? I mean, when you think something, is that in some sense one thing, or is it really lots and lots of things? I mean, is it like a, a color, which we could be made out of little different things which are but they might not even be colored when you look at them as small. It could be a false color or something. And things like that. Or is it something which the OR event is very close to what you might think of an actual experience? I mm. don't know. I would hate to be dogmatic on that. I think probably Stuart and I slightly diverge on this. But since I haven't really discussed it on, <laughs> with him on that, I tend to go along with what he says because I haven't got a theory of my own which says anything better. Assume that this your new science of orchestrated objective reduction has a, a, a place in the explanation of consciousness. I'll give you that assumption. How would it then articulate with the, the broader philosophical categories of physicalism, that everything has to be you know, purely uh, based on the physical world, nothing beyond that, or, as you know, panpsychism has been um, has been growing as a uh, a philosophical approach to the conundrum of of the uh, experiential phenomenology of consciousness, or or idealism, which everything is conscious. I think idealism it it, it would it would not articulate with. But but how about you know between physicalism and panpsychism, orchestrated objective reduction 
is it could it be part of either one um, or is it a more of a physicalism but a, but a shall we say a broad a broadening of the concept of physicalism I think my troubles always get lost when I start talking to philosophers about these issues I don't quite know what they mean you see um, certainly I'm regarding it conscious experience as physical in the sense that something in the physical world is happening when that conscious experience is taking place. And it's of a different character than just saying um, this pen is over here rather than being over here or something. I mean, it's, it's got to be of a different character which really is going down into the quantum aspects of, of reality. So you can't get away from that. But it's not just quantum as we have it now because it's, it's, it's going beyond current quantum mechanics. It's going where current quantum mechanics is, is, a, is a, at least an incomplete theory where it doesn't tell you how, why you don't see these macroscopic superpositions. They should be all over the place. It's just saying they decohere, which is the, ten, the argument. People say, well, they get mixed up with the environment. Well, so, so what? I mean, they get mixed up with the environment, but it doesn't make them somehow have happened or not. There's always a cheat in all those arguments. So you need something other than current quantum theory to make sense of any a picture of the world which looks anything like the world that we see. We know it need to go beyond that. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I'm trying to say that, that it's certainly not physicalist in the sense of the physics we know now. It's got to be some physics which goes beyond the physics we know, we know now. And do you think that orchestrated objective reduction in attempting to explain consciousness can then reflect on what this broader theory of quantum mechanics or what lies below quantum mechanics uh, is? Uh, could this attempt to understand consciousness lead to a deeper understanding of the physics? Yes, I think that could be, well be true. I mean, that's an interesting way of going. Um, the trouble here, I think we know so little about the consciousness for it to tell us much about the physics, but it could do. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to be too dogmatic about that. See, most of the experiments in physics are so delicate and you've got to eliminate all the in, intruding factors. Um, I mean, those experiments, I mean, the experiments which have been done or have been looked at directed towards this objective reduction scheme primarily have been so far done by Dick Baumeister. And he had been trying to put a little mirror into a superposition of two locations. So that mirror is about a tenth of the thickness of a human hair. So it's a little tiny thing. But the trouble is when you really, I thought he was getting very close to doing this experiment, but he sort of ran into um, keeping the temperature under control, problems like that. So you have real difficulties about getting rid of decoherence. And he was running into these problems at that stage. There are other experiments using Bose-Einstein condensates, which are a very promising idea. It'll be a while before these experiments are at a level of actually testing the objective reduction of the state. So we're a long way off before we get there. Now, would you're asking, would understanding of consciousness give us clues about that? Maybe. I don't see anything which is very promising in that direction, mainly because we understand so little about consciousness. That's the trouble there. 
when I was thinking about orchestrated objective reduction, I was thinking about it in the context of your famous uh, a three-world model of the physical, the mental, and the platonic, uh, how a little part of each one engages the other. And, and um, in that process, would this new science of consciousness, uh, seeing orchestrated objective reduction, uh, would that uh, support that kind of model? In some sense, um, will it support the, the the three worlds picture? Uh, uh, As I had originally seen the the the, the three uh, world model yeah. of the physical, the mental, and the yeah, platonic, yeah. it's um, very general. That though, I mean, I'm not really making much general and, and a little part in. But I was yeah. wondering if the nature of the mental from this new science, from orchestrated objective mm -hmm. reduction, whether that might reinforce it in terms of the small part of, of, the, of, of each one that affects the other. Yes, well, you're looking for that very delicate organization. According to the general point of view I have, the OR process is very, very broad. It's all over the place, you see. It's just that it's not controlled. It's not orchestrated. It's... it's it just gives you huge um, macroscopic effects. It's smear out the quantum mechanics and you don't even see it without looking extremely carefully. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's not doing much very sophisticated in, in bringing the OR process into a, a real sort of testing it very precisely. And we're only at, at, the, at just the borderline of being able to do that now. Um, I would say there's a good chance within the next five or ten years that we'll have clear evidence for objective reduction of the quantum state. But that's not bad if you compare that with what the string theorists think they might do. You know, can you ever see a, 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 Well, ten years is a very, a very short time frame, and you have a standing invitation to come back in ten years, and we will evaluate it together. Um, At my hundredth birthday, uh, you're inviting me for my hundredth birthday, are you? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's an absolute date, um, and, and I I do think that whenever I want to uh, explore borderlines in physics or cosmology of consciousness, I know who to call, and so I look forward to our future conversations. I'll say to everyone watching, uh, you can watch parts one and two of Closer to Truth's three-part interview with Sir Roger Penrose on CloserToTruth.com and the Closer to Truth YouTube channel, along with more than 20 of Roger's videos that we've recorded over the years. So, Roger, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, I've learned a lot. I always do. I look forward to more. And uh, thanks for being here. And thanks to everyone for watching. Well, thank you for all those questions. I couldn't answer. <laughs> A lot of thinking has to be done about those ones. Yes. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.